you have your Bibles, could you please open them to Esther chapter 2 with me this evening? Esther chapter 2. Our text for this evening will be verses 13 through to 18. It has been some time since we've been in the book of Esther. You know, we're up to chapter 2. And if you happen to remember anything, however vaguely it may be, I broke the 18 verses of chapter 2 up into three episodes, and we're viewing this like a mini TV series, if you like. So last time I tried to leave it in suspense as to what would happen next, but obviously the suspense effect wasn't that effective because it's been so long since we have been here. So just like any TV series that has been delayed for any period of time, it will always begin with previously on whatever show you like to watch, to refresh our memories as to what occurred. And this is how we must begin this evening. So previously in the book of Esther, we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, upon returning from a disastrous military campaign against the Greeks, which resulted in many lives lost, much wealth squandered, and an extremely shattered pride for this ruler, He was left licking his wounds in his palace and his miseries were compounded because this man had dethroned his queen before this failed campaign. It was at this time that the king's advisers devised this plan to replace the queen. And this particular plan that is conjured up to help with the king will definitely help the king with his miseries because it satisfies his immoral fleshly desires. Now the king, he is thrilled with this proposed plan and immediately this is put into action. If we remember, these men went out into all 127 provinces seeking the most beautiful women to bring them back to Shushan so they could partake in this immoral procedure to gratify the king and they used the incentive that you may become the next queen. It is in chapter 2 that we're introduced to the main character of this story. That, of course, being Esther. We're given very little detail in regards to her family background and her situation. But we have revealed that she was a lady of immense beauty. Now, we are told all of these ladies were gathered and they were brought into the king's harem. At this time, they were put through an intense purification program. This process lasted for 12 months, consisting of many perfumes, oils, and myrrh. All of this to make sure that the ladies were what the king wanted, that they were pure for the king. We learnt during this process that Esther found special favour with Haggai, who was the keeper of the harem. And this resulted in a lot of special treatment, including food, a favourable location in the house, and the best servants. Esther was helped greatly in this preparation process, but all these special favours would be pointless. All this would be vain if Xerxes did not choose her. There were many ladies who were going to come before Xerxes during this time. Who would he choose? It could only be one. There was only one crown. And it is this that we will consider in the third and final episode this evening. The title for the message this evening is God's Choice for Queen. God's Choice for Queen. 
So let's pray. We'll commit this time to the Lord and ask for his help. So let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for this opportunity that we have to come out tonight, Lord. I thank you for all those who have made the effort to come out tonight. And I do pray as we come around your word that you would um, give us clarity, you'd give us understanding, Lord, and that we would um, get something out of this amazing narrative. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In considering this third episode this evening, which is the climaxing points in our little series, what better way than to jump straight into the text so we can learn who will be crowned queen? This evening I wish to study this third episode, God's Choice for Queen, under three headings. They being the election method, Esther's moments, and the electing of a monarch. So firstly, let's consider the election method in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, Then thus came every maiden unto the king. Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the woman to the custody of Shahashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. The author of this book has written in a very modest, kind of opaque style, particularly in the verses we have before us. He explains a rather unsavory process in rather pleasant terms. These verses are somewhat ambiguous, not revealing specific central details, which I think is of vital importance when we consider what we can learn from this event. There are certain parts of the Bible that are rather graphic, and they explain events using very precise, picturesque language, but this is not the case in our text this evening. And I would like to suggest the reason why the author writes this way is because this is not the focus of the story. I don't feel the purpose of this story is to debate the morals, ethics and character of this lady, hence why the particulars of this situation are kept from us. We are left in the dark to a certain extent. I think it's important that we do not get hung up on the moral issues. Should she have done this? Should she have not? Either condemning or justifying her actions with various arguments. Now I think we must be wary of this because that is not the point of this narrative. This is not a text to preach morals from. So this evening, we will not even consider the issues that many a scholar has spilt much ink on. For I don't think this is the overriding purpose of this text or the overriding theme of this book. Upon the completion of the 12-month purification process, as revealed in verse 12, a lady was now ready to come before the king. How the order was determined as to who would go first, second, third, or so on, we are left in the dark. You know, perhaps they drew straws, perhaps it was left to the discretion of Haggai, we don't know. When it came to a lady's turn, each of these young ladies were given whatever 
she desired when it was her turn to come before the king. This meaning that she could choose whatever garment she wished to wear. I guess whatever garment she thought would bring out her eyes or whatever else ladies do. She could pick the jewels that she wished to wear. She could apply whatever perfume, scent, oil or myrrh that she desired. She could use whatever she needed to make herself look the most beautiful. Whatever she needed to enhance the chance of the king choosing her. This was granted to her and every lady would have this opportunity. Now, after a lady had prepared herself physically and no doubt emotionally and mentally, which we will come back to, in the evening she would be brought into the king's chamber. And this is where she would stay for the night, endeavouring to win the king's favour and be crowned as the next queen. Now, despite the way our text is written, I do want us to understand what actually occurred. I want us to understand that this is not a beauty pageant, as I've said before. This is not like some TV show you see where two people come in and they pour out their feelings. They talk about their dreams and their ambitions. And whatever one the king agrees with, that's who he chooses. This is not like that, but this is a filthy, immoral procedure. Once this night with the king was over, the young lady would now go into a different house. This house was managed by a new eunuch. It was no longer Haggai, but it was Shehashgaz. And this house is known as the house of the concubines. Concubines were second class wives of the king. And they would only be called back to the king if he delighted in them and called them by name. This is revealed in verse 14. So potentially these women could spend the rest of their lives in this house and never again come before the king. They effectively have this life of perpetual widowhood. I want us to understand this life of a concubine. This was not a glamorous life. They were never allowed to marry. She would never have intimate contact with a man. They would never have their own homes. They would never go back to their family or friends. They were forced to live in a house with hundreds of women in the same predicaments. You know, one doesn't have to have much of an imagination to see this is not a very good existence. You know, this immoral election method would have run for some time. How long we cannot be certain for we are not told how many women were involved. But these women were faced with a terrible future, a life of widowhood as a concubine. And remember, even if they were elected as queen, all it takes is for you to disappoint the king once and you can be dethroned. Remember Vashti and Esther 1. You know, what a terrible existence this was for these young women, used and abused as mere objects. And this is the situation that this young Jewish girl finds herself in. This is how this pagan ruler treats women. And this highlights how revolutionary the Bible and Christianity is for women. 
It was not only the Persian Empire who treated women in this way, but most, if not all, empires and societies treated women as second-class citizens, often as mere objects for the man's pleasure. But the Bible and the teachings of Christianity are certainly not like this. Men and women are equal. Man is not superior in the eyes of God. Both man and woman are made in the image of God. Praise God for this equality. Men and women do have rather different functions, but there is equality in Christianity. Women are not in bondage and inferior to the man. We are co-heirs with Christ. And we as believers must remember this equality, give thanks for this equality, and practice the roles that God has spelled out for man and woman. How long this process has been going for, we are not told. How many ladies had spent their night with the king, we are not privy to. But it was now the turn of Esther to come before Xerxes. And this is what we see secondly. We see Esther's moments. Esther's moment in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15. Now when the turn of Esther the daughter of Abiel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king. She required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther attained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus, into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. The author in separating Esther's encounter from the other girls has perhaps somewhat avoided the direct connection of Esther and the central details, softening a negative characterization of her. It is at this moment as Esther is about to embark on this daunting task that we have the family information of this young Jewish girl revealed, although the information is still rather brief. Now, we are told she was the daughter of Abiel, and we are reminded, again, the pivotal role that Mordecai played in her life. This small piece of information really does not help you and I to further identify this lady, but no doubt the Jewish readers of this time, who kept very strict family trees, to use a modern term, could probably trace this line proving the authenticity of this particular narrative and those involved. In the previous point, we looked at the fact that these young ladies could get whatever they wanted, whatever they thought was necessary to make themselves look the most beautiful, give themselves the best chance of winning the approval of Ahasuerus. Esther was different to the other girls, and she showed great wisdom. We're told in verse 15 that Esther required nothing except what Haggai, the keeper of the women, had given to her. This reveals to us a few things about this young Jewish lady. Firstly, it reminds us of her immense natural beauty. Unlike the other girls, she did not need to go over the top with all the adornments and extra props. And listening to Haggai shows great wisdom. And maturity on the part of Esther. Uh, How easy it is when one is young 
not to listen because they think they know everything. You know, I have been terribly guilty of this. But this was not the case for this young lady. She listened and acted according to what Haggai said. This reveals much wisdom to us because this man knew better than anyone else the king's taste in women. This was his job. And being partial towards Esther, he attired her accordingly and she followed his instruction, which says much of her character. You know, Esther was now prepared. The purification program was complete. It was now time for her to go to the king. She was escorted out of the house of the women and was taken to the king's chambers. We are told this was in the tenth month to Beth, in the seventh year of the reign of the king. Many believe that the Bible is wrong when it says the seventh year because Vashti was dethroned in the third year. And they say there is no way in the world this process could take four years in order to get these ladies together and prepared. But what we must remember, as we looked at before, during this time was when Xerxes went to fight Greek, fight the Greeks, sorry. And this was the failed military campaign. And that explains this time period. The month to Beth is December, January on our calendar. And this would either be 479 or 478 BC. These months were cold, wet months, even in Shushan. So perhaps it was cold and rainy and miserable as Esther was led to the king's palace. You know, we're not privy as to what was going through the mind of this young lady. But we can imagine what must have been running through her mind. She must have thought about this night and the potential consequences if the king was not pleased. The thought of being one of the king's concubines was not exactly appealing. There must have been great mental and emotional anguish. She had seen many other ladies go into the king. Obviously, he didn't choose them. This must have been a grueling time, causing much anguish and pain. We must never underestimate the effect this had on Esther and the other ladies. This was not a pleasant task that all desired with this guaranteed golden ticket for a better life, but really quite the opposite. But what was done was done. This was going to happen. She was taken into the king How would the king respond? Would the king be pleased? Would he choose Esther? Or would she be faced with a life of complete and utter misery, locked away in the house of the concubines? This leads us to the third and last point. We see the electing of a monarch. The electing of a monarch in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17. And the king loved Esther above all the women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the states of the king. Esther now in the king's palace must have been incredibly nervous 
the palms sweaty, the heart beating faster. No doubt she realized the consequences of what was about to happen. But what a response she got from this pagan king. This process to finding a new monarch was now over. The king had made a decision. We get the impression that immediately, as soon as the king saw Esther, he made up his mind. This is what the language conveys. Verse 17 declares that the king loves Esther. Uh, This word love is quite a broad word. It can be used to describe genuine love or it can be used to describe a lustful love. And I would suggest that that is how this word is used in this verse. We see a repeating trend that Esther once again finds grace and favor, which has been a common occurrence. Everyone that she has come into contact with, she has found this grace and favor. But this time it is found with the most important person in the entire empire, and that is the king himself. I'd like to suggest that although Esther had incredible beauty and it's most probable that she had great character to go with it, I think it's more than evident here that God had his hand on this pagan king. Just like he did with Pharaoh of old and of Cyprus, not Cyprus, sorry, of Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem, he now has his hand on the life of Xerxes to make sure that the one that God wants becomes queen And this reminds us that the heart of the king, the heart of any ruler is in the hand of God. A rather encouraging truth. We would do well to remember that God is always in control, even if the situation seems hopeless. The last part of verse 17 is of vital importance. The future of Israel depends on this event, as we'll see further on in this narrative God makes sure at this time that the right one is crowned in order to make sure that his people are kept safe. That is why Esther is put on the throne to protect Israel. Xerxes, upon seeing Esther, he didn't need to see any more of these women. He immediately placed the crown on Esther's head. She was now the queen instead of Vashti, this young, humble Jewish girl. The orphan who was dependent on her cousin's charity was now the queen of the largest empire in the world. What a great change of circumstances and fortunes, all of this showing the divine control of matters on earth. I think it's rather instructive that hundreds of officials searched all over the empire, all 127 provinces for a queen, when right in Shushan, where the king lived, the woman who would become queen was already there. You know, how often God mocks the efforts of worldly men. God had this new queen all picked out in advance and had already moved her to Shushan long before she became queen. You know, God was running the show as he always does. Upon deciding that Esther would be queen, there is no prize for guessing what would happen next. In typical Persian royal family style, a massive party was going to be thrown. Now in verse 18, this is actually the fourth banquet that we have recorded in this book so far. You know, much like the Australian culture, any excuse to have a party. 
you know, this revealing much about the character and lifestyle of the Persian Empire. This feast is described to us as a great feast. So this is perhaps even greater than the feast we have recorded in Esther chapter 1. Now once again, all the important people are invited, all the princes, all the servants, to this massive feast, which is called Esther's Feast. It was at this feast that Esther was officially made queen, and this would have more than likely doubled as a wedding-type feast. The historian Josephus writes that this particular feast lasted for one month. Now this is quite plausible, considering the feast in chapter 1 lasted for six months. You know, the Persians liked to party long. There was one big difference at this banquet compared to chapter 1, and it is revealed in the second part of verse 18. The common people were included in this celebration. You know, it says, He made a release to the provinces and gave gifts. The phrase made a release means causing to rest. And there are a few different opinions as to what this means. You know, I think this definitely refers to rest. So the king announced like an empire holiday, a public holiday for a period of time. You know, I thought much like how Bob Hawke gave Australia a public holiday when Australia won that boat race. A similar idea. Now this releasing may also have to do with taxes. The Persian Empire was heavily taxed, so maybe the king decided there would be no taxes for a certain period of time. And this may further explain why the king accepted money from Haman for his diabolical request. This phrase may also mean a release from military service or a release from slavery. Now what exactly occurred we do not know. But we can be sure that the king wanted everybody to celebrate. The king wanted everybody involved. And this is also revealed in the fact that he gave gifts. You know, the married couple were giving gifts. That is not how it normally works. And these gifts here are described as according to the state of the king. You know, this meaning abundant, large gifts, generous gifts. He opened up his royal purse even further. Now, what exactly these gifts entailed, we are not told. But many scholars believe it meant the giving of food and wine to the common people so they could celebrate with the king in celebrating the crowning of the queen. Well, what we see from this is the king wanted everybody involved. The king wanted everybody to like this new queen. And hence, everybody was included in celebrating the crowning of this monarch. The king wanted all to rejoice. And I think this may also have to do with the fact that the morale would have been very low in Persia. You know, imagine the great effect that the Greek war would have had, the many lives lost, the money spent. The people would not have been very happy at this time. They would have felt very oppressed. So perhaps this banquet was also used to boost the morale of the people, to get them to like the king again. Because we must remember the king was told, don't go on that war. Yet he still did. 
Now, this was a chance to win the people back in including them in the celebration of the crowning of the new queen. So this is the conclusion of the third episode. This young Jewish girl, who would have thought, is now the queen. She was the one who was selected out of the hundreds to replace Vashti. There was now a Jew sitting upon a Persian throne. Who would have thought? And how important this was going to be in preserving the Jewish people, God's people. Now this is the conclusion of this third episode. Esther is the one God chose to be queen. And I wish to wrap all of this up this evening with three thoughts of application. So firstly, God's providence. God's providence. How was it that this young Jewish lady became queen? Was it chance? Was it luck? Absolutely not. This was the providence of the almighty God. Constantly, in these first two chapters, we see the hand of God at work. We see that God is in control. And God wants us to see that no matter how wicked and depraved our society may be, He is still overruling men and Satan. Even in this depraved, pagan, Persian society, God was still working. He was still in control. And this is the same today. Despite how wicked, how depraved our present culture and society is, we can take great comfort and encouragement that God is still on the throne. God is still in control and his hand is at work. And he, in his sovereignty, can use even the wickedest man to carry out his plans as he did in this situation. What a great God we serve. A God who is always in control. Secondly, we see God's people. God's people. Why was it that Esther was made queen? Well, it was so God could use her to spare his people. As we will study, there was a plot to exterminate the Jewish people. And Esther was used mightily by God to squash this plan and save the Jewish people. This reveals to us the great love and care that God has for his people. The nation of Israel had not been faithful. They had not been loyal to God. These people should have been back in the land. Yet God still loved and cared for them dearly. So much so, he made sure that the right person was in the right place at the right time, in the right position, to make sure his people didn't get annihilated. No, God loves his people. And this is a glorious truth for us today. For we, the church, are his people. Now, we are not the nation of Israel, but nevertheless, we are the people of God. And as his people, God cares and loves us Dearly. Now, isn't that an amazing truth that God loves you and that God loves me? God loves all mankind despite our grievous sin, but even more so, He has a love for His people. Praise God for His great love. And the only appropriate response is to reciprocate that love to Him. And we do that by keeping His commandments. And thirdly, in application, we see God's plan. God's plan. God had a plan for this young Jewish lady. 
who was really a nobody, yet God was about to use her in mighty ways. No, God used Esther to carry out his plans. So God today still uses people to carry out his plan and work. And we, everyone here, has a place in God's plan. You know, God wants to use you. God wants to use me. You know, God doesn't need us. He's all-powerful, yet in his grace chooses to use you and I to carry out his plan, to use us as instruments. And what an awesome privilege we have to be used by God to carry out his work. You know, service is not a burden, but a blessing. What an honour it is to be used by God to carry out his plan. You know, beloved, what an awesome God we serve. A God that's always in control. A God that loves us dearly and he delights in using his people to carry out his work. Let's not dwell on the apparent moral issues in this text, but let's dwell on the definite, glorious character of our God that is revealed. Amen. Let's pray.